All right, open up your Bibles if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we've placed them under the chairs. You can grab one of those and and turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're finishing a series in Philippians that we've called Risk Everything. Risk Everything. And the idea is that as you see that Jesus has given everything for you, that will turn your heart. You'll want to then give to others. You'll want to start following Jesus and spend your life for his glory. The gospel changes our hearts. What Jesus has done for us changes us into the kinds of people that are then generous and give our lives away for others. After we finish this week, over the summer, we're going to be doing a new series called Ancient Faith. Ancient Faith. We're going to take Hebrews 11 and use that as a guide to look back at Old Testament heroes who followed God by faith. We're going to learn how in the Old Testament, people walked by faith in God. They learned to trust God and his grace, just like we do in the New Testament. So we're going to look forward to that uh, for the summer series, Ancient Faith. We're going to kind of use Hebrews 11 as our guide, but hop and skip through major Old Testament heroes of the faith, looking at different Old Testament passages. That should be a great time. But this week, it'll be the last chapter of Philippians. We're in chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 10 through 23. Chapter 4, verses 10 through 23, we're calling it the open secret. How many of you like to solve puzzles? Raise your hand. Do you like solve puzzles? Uh, How many of you like mysteries? Raise your hand. Do you like mysteries? Okay, so this is for you. Here we go. All right, there was a famous kind of mystery thriller movie that came out right when we were planting Grace Bible Church, 2006. Um, It was a movie by Ron Howard. He was the director, pretty famous director. You've heard of Ron Howard? Does pretty good movies. Um, it was actually the highest-grossing movie that Ron Howard's ever done. So one of his best movies at the box office. Um, it was the second highest-grossing movie in 2006, the year we planted this church. The movie was called The Da Vinci Code. Any of you heard of The Da Vinci Code? All right. The Da Vinci Code takes the ancient traditions of the Christian faith and says there are a bunch of conspiracies and secrets, and only if you are smart enough and you have enough grit can you fight your way into the truth? And what the Da Vinci Code held up as the secret origins of Christianity is kind of a pattern that we see play out in most religions. And it's a pattern that we actually see play out even in atheism and secularism, whereby human beings say, if I really want to know the truth, and I really want to break into the inner circle, I got to be smarter than the next guy. I got to solve the puzzle. I got to dig into the mystery. And if I work hard enough, and if I'm smart enough, then I can be one of the secret few that have made it to the inner circle. I can make it into the secrets of truth. And so what the Da Vinci Code was doing was it was playing on this common human thing, this desire we all have to be the smart ones. We all want to be the people that figured it out. We all want to be the people that have worked harder than anybody else and we've broken through to the truth. Here's the problem. Christianity gives the exact opposite message. Christianity says, yeah, your hard work, your smarts and your grit, that just results in sin and selfishness. We need to surrender to the God of the universe. In Christianity, it's not a secret that you have to fight to uncover. In Christianity, it's an open secret that is given away for free. It's not very satisfying for our egos, but it's actually the one thing that can really save us. So that's what Paul is talking about here. It's a theme in the letters of Paul. He uses the word mystery a lot, 
In our passage, he uses the word secret. And when Paul is using the word mystery, when he's using the word secret, he's talking about the common way that people in the first century, just like the common way today, thought that they were the only ones that really had it figured out, right? And so as Christians, we need to recognize that we're gathering today to worship Jesus, not because we think we're better than other people and we've got it all figured out. We're gathering to worship Jesus because we couldn't figure it out and we need Jesus. Do you see the difference? So here Paul will unpack this for us in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. Starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We have the the wrapping up of Philippians. As I said, the big theme we've seen is risking everything. Seeing that Jesus gave everything for us. We see that in Philippians 2. And then that unfolds in us giving ourselves to others. And here Paul is going to end with this open secret of, you know what? Jesus is the secret to all the things that God ever calls us to. God calls us to hard things. He calls us to difficult things. And we have to understand that Jesus and what he's done for us by dying for our sins, by rising from the dead, that's the secret. Jesus is the secret. He's the way that we can come into the secret knowledge of God. And he's the way that we can know crazy countercultural things like contentment. Something our culture doesn't really know, but we can know contentment through the secret of knowing Jesus Christ. We can be generous, giving people through the secret of knowing Jesus Christ, and we can be a unified people. In a time of great division, we can be unified because of the secret of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Let me pray for us, and then we'll uncover the text in more detail. God, thank you that you love us. Sometimes we doubt it, Lord, and we confess that to you. But as we're reminded of who you are and what you've done, as we see you, revealed in in the scriptures. We're reminded that you're a gracious God. You're a saving God. You're a forgiving God, a God who comes after us in our need. Uh, We're confused. We don't know the secret. We don't know how to unlock the mysteries of life. And yet you give those keys to us in Christ. And so God, I pray for those of us this morning that are struggling, that maybe trust you, but we're we're on the ropes, uh, that you would help us to get a renewed vision of your kindness to us. For those that have deep questions, unanswered questions, God, Give them an open mind. Help them to remain open to you and your personal revelation of yourself. Help us to to hear from your word. We pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.
So the outline is, is pretty simple and it, it builds. Um, one step builds to the next. Um, oftentimes we'll teach a main idea and it'll kind of fan out and like, here are three components of this main idea, but each one kind of builds on the next. So it's like, if you don't get the first idea, you won't really get the second idea. And if you don't get the second idea, you won't get the third idea. Um, so the secret, the open secret is something that enables us to live a countercultural life. And so Paul's going to unfold these countercultural ways of living in three ways in our outline. So the first is the secret of contentment. The secret of contentment. That means being okay in good times and bad. The secret of contentment. And then that leads to the secret of giving. If you learn the secret of contentment, then you can become a giving person, a generous person. So that leads to the secret of giving. And then the third part of the outline is the secret of unity. We will be a unified people if we learn the secret of contentment and the secret of giving. Okay, you see how those all build on each other? We'll unfold it here in more detail. First is the secret of contentment. We see this in the first few verses. Um, verse 10, kind of a thematic verse for the whole section. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Kind of sounds like he's complaining, uh, almost like a backhanded compliment, like, man, I really wish you'd helped me before, but now finally you are. That's, that's not what he's saying. Just to clarify that, we'll come back to that later. He is genuinely rejoicing, like, thank you for sending this dude Epaphroditus. Thanks for the money. Thanks for helping me out. He's clarifying all of this, but he wants to go into more details here in verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So here we're going to see Paul speak what seems like out of both sides of his mouth. Okay, And we do this a lot at our church as well. Uh, we'll say things like, man, we're 20% behind on budget, but I just want you to understand we don't really need your money because Jesus is going to take care of us, right? We'll say things like that. We'll say like, yeah, we need your money, but no, it's fine. You know, we'll do fine with that because we got Jesus and Jesus is enough. Paul's doing the same kind of thing here. He's, he's wanting to help their hearts understand that he's not manipulating them into giving according to a need, that he understands that ultimately if he's got Jesus, Jesus is enough. That is contentment. The word contentment is a word uh, that was used a lot in the Stoic religion. Um, it has connections in our day. Stoicism in the ancient world is very similar to Buddhism today. And this is kind of a um, kind of self-satisfaction, kind of being okay within yourself kind of concept. And what we want to understand is apart from Christ, there's no way that we can be self-sufficient or self-satisfied. But in Christ, we can be self-satisfied, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a paradoxical kind of word. And Paul's going to lead them to see, okay, I'm not begging for need because I am self-sufficient. But I'm self-sufficient not because Paul is great. I'm self-sufficient because Jesus is taking care of me. So he says, this is not about my need. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Okay, so he's just said this three different ways. Um, high, low, high, low, right? Plenty and want, abundance and need. Like he's just, he's trying to clarify this and he's repeated himself three times. Every circumstance, he says, I know the secret of contentment. Here's another way of saying this. Our contentment is not based on circumstances. Do you see that? As far as followers of Jesus. A follower of Jesus is not content because of circumstances. A follower of Jesus is content, is self-satisfied because Jesus is with me. 
He's with me. That's what makes me satisfied. I know that Jesus is going to take care of me no matter what the circumstances. He gets explicit here in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the secret, right? The open secret. You don't have to be strong enough to know the secret. You don't have to be smart enough to know the secret. The secret is Jesus is strong enough. Jesus is smart enough. Jesus is the one that takes care of me. And again, that's not very satisfying for our egos, is it? I want to be the smart guy. I want to be the strong guy. I want to be the guy that wins the race. The Christian story is I lost the race. I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't smart enough. But Jesus was. And he's my only hope. And so I'm content in him. I know this is hard. And for those of you that are strong people, just please bear with me. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would hold your attention because everything in you right now is screaming, no, no, this can't be. I got to win, right? But you can win in Jesus. And this is where it's supernatural. You can win in Jesus in plenty and in want. When times are tough and when times are great, you can win in Jesus. Jesus can be enough. He is the secret of contentment. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I had a t-shirt when I first became a Christian that had that verse on it. Any of you had a t-shirt with that verse on it? Um, I got saved at a Christian athlete's camp. That's where I first met Jesus. Um, and so I had this t-shirt. I think I bought it at camp. I might have bought it later. Um, but God was working on my heart to, to help me to let go of the idolatry of sports and to cling to Jesus being my salvation, right? I'd kind of been taught early on that if you were successful at sports, then that could make you okay, and that could give you significance. And the Lord, in his kindness, made me fail a lot at sports. So that helped me to see that only Jesus could be my hope, right? But yet I still had this shirt, and it had a picture of like every sport that ever existed. You know, it had just like 50 different little symbols of people playing sports, and it said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's the implication of that t-shirt? Right? The implication is that I can run fast and I can jump higher and I can play better football because Christ is in me. That's not actually what the verse is about, okay? I was mistaken as a young 18-year-old Christian. What he's actually saying is that the secret of contentment is Christ is in me. So when I fail at sports and when I succeed at sports, Christ is enough. Or to say it in a more adult way, when I fail at work or I succeed in work, Christ is enough. When my relationships are good and when my relationships are bad, Christ is enough. My salvation is not found in my circumstances. It's found in Christ. That's where my contentment comes from. This is a supernatural uh, mystery here. This learning the secret phrase is a Greek word, me muemai. Me muemai was a first century word for being initiated into a secret society. So what Paul is saying is, I've been initiated into the secret society. And in every other secret society of their day, it was through perseverance, through hard work, through being smart, through kicking the door in. That's how you would get initiated into a secret society. Part of, uh, a lot of you are probably a part of special clubs that you can only get into by your hard work and effort. Christianity says Jesus is the one that got you into the club. You're in the inner circle of being a part of God's family because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He absorbed the wrath of God. He gives you freely his perfect obedience, 
And he rises from death to prove that he really has conquered sin and death. And so that adopts us. That faith in what Jesus has done makes us a part of the family of God. That brings us into God's family. First John 4, 10 says it this way. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for us. Do you see that? Now, the rest of 1 John says, you should love God. You should love God. But ultimately, this is really what love is. God loved you first. We love because he first loved us. He's the one that initiated us into the secret society of God's family. You belong to your heavenly father. He loves you. He delights in you. I grabbed a picture of a father hugging a daughter. I just want to give you this image of embrace, this image of love. Some of you have these kinds of positive images in your childhood to draw on. Some of you do not. Now, whether you had a good father or a bad father, whether you had a father or no father at all, part of the way that we can evaluate that and judge that experience is because God is the perfect heavenly father. He brings us into his perfect, unstoppable love through the work of Jesus Christ. If you struggle to believe that, you need to look back at what God did for you through Jesus. You need to rehearse the story of Jesus. So the secret of contentment, of being okay in good times and in bad, is Jesus, right? What are the alternative secrets of contentment out there in the world? Well, there are two alternative gospels that are being preached at us all the time. I like to call it the prosperity gospel and the poverty gospel. Have you all ever heard those phrases before? Prosperity gospel gets talked about more often. Prosperity gospel is if you give enough money and do enough good things and have enough faith, then God will be forced to bless you, right? It's kind of like if you put in quarters of faith, God is a cosmic uh, vending machine and he's, got, he's, he's forced to bless you. He just has to, right? It's taking this general concept of blessing and giving and turning it into uh, a, a mechanistic view of God where you're binding him by your behavior, right? That's earning your salvation. Paul says... I've learned the secret of contentment in plenty and in want. So what he's saying here is it can't be the prosperity gospel or the poverty gospel because he can be content in Jesus either way. The poverty gospel is sometimes what we fall into if we are good religious people that recognize the prosperity gospel is not true. We're like, okay, I see that. That's not biblical. You know, you don't always get blessing. Jesus suffered. I can tell the prosperity gospel is false. We sometimes swing hard the other way and we run after the poverty gospel, right? What's the poverty gospel? The poverty gospel is this that you only know God really loves you if you're really miserable and suffering, right? And you pursue, purposefully pursue suffering and misery. We're not to pursue prosperity or suffering or poverty. We're to pursue Jesus. And when we pursue Jesus and we know that he's enough, then he enables us to genuinely trust him in poverty and to genuinely trust him in wealth. Either one can become a false gospel, right? In your poverty, you can think, man, I'm poor. God must hate me. No, God loves you. Look at the cross. He gave Jesus for you. Jesus died for your sins. So your circumstances don't determine God's love for you. Same thing can happen when things are going well, which I think is a bigger problem in our demographic. Many of you are strong. You're successful. You're established. You're leaders. And you can think, I did this. God loves me. I do the right things. And God wants you to know it's, it's not your circumstances that prove God's love. It's what God did for us in the cross through Christ.
Christ. So Paul's saying, I know the secret to contentment, and it's Jesus. So how do we practice contentment? Um, two big applications here that I think are really helpful for Christians. One Christian practice we often call the daily quiet time, but I would just summarize it by prayer and scripture meditation. Uh, being a people that meditate on the scriptures that remind us of the truth of God's love for us, that it's not circumstantial, but it's based on what God has revealed to us through Jesus Christ. And so learning scripture, memorizing scripture, singing scripture, singing hymns and praise songs that remind us of the story of the gospel, meditating on these truths can be a really helpful way for us to remember the secret of contentment, which is Christ alone. Uh, another practice is, is weekly worship. Gathering in worship, we talk about that a lot as kind of the central foundation for what we do as a church. It's like the, the starting base for everything else that happens here. Um, just know that we're in a cultural era where weekly gathering for worship is becoming uh, not the norm anymore. And it's, it's really good for us. We're like, we're not going to start counting attendance and, and get on your case and be mad at you when you don't come weekly. I just want you to know, like, we're spreading a buffet of God's goodness, right? We're gathering around the goodness of God's good news in Jesus Christ. And we want to invite you to take advantage of that. It's good for your soul. So, so daily time of prayer and meditation and weekly time of gathering around the scriptures. These are good rhythms to help remind us that we are content in Christ. Some of you need to place your faith in Jesus for the first time. You've never really officially said like, Jesus, I need you. I'm not content without you. I need you to take away my sin and, and bring me into the inner circle of God's adopting love. Others of you have been faithfully walking with Jesus for years. You just need to remember, right? Because it's easy to forget. And so that's why we practice these daily practices of scripture and prayer, but also these weekly practices of gathering in worship and studying the scriptures together to remind us, man, I, I need you. I still need you. I need you every day. That's the secret of contentment. Now, this leads us to uh, the second secret, which is the secret of giving. Uh, you can't give biblically unless you are content in Jesus. Okay? You hear that? You cannot give biblically unless you're content in Jesus. Let me say the negative. Um, we love your financial gifts, right? I get paid by your financial gifts. We love it. Thank you. But it's not biblical giving if you're giving thinking that God mechanically owes you something in return. You're falling short of what God's called you to. The New Testament command of giving, 2 Corinthians 9, is, is the best cross-reference if you want to go and study more. What does the New Testament say about giving? 2 Corinthians 9. It says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. We give because we believe Jesus has given to us. We don't give trying to get something out of God. Do you see the difference? And so if you're giving in that way, thank you, but <laughs> there's more for you. And that's what Paul is going to say here. Paul is going to, this is where he kind of has this paradoxical language where he's like, hey, thanks for the gift. Not that I really need it because Jesus is enough, but thank you for the gift. And the gift is good for you. It's not really that good for me. Like he's, he's saying kind of what feels like confusing things, right? Like if you get a missionary support letter, we've got some of our global partners here and they say, hey, we need more funds, but we don't really need the funds because Jesus is enough, but we kind of need the, you know, you're going to be like, wait, what is it? Do I, do I need the funds or not? And Paul's doing something here. But his point is to help them grow in Jesus. Okay, so let's look at the text. Verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. It's that word partnership. It's koinonia in the Greek. It's often translated fellowship. Um, if you grew up in the church, fellowship means 
fried chicken and ice cream, but in the New Testament, it means something even more than that, right? It means like a business partnership. It means sharing burdens together. So sometimes we share burdens by just having a meal together, but there's more here. We're saying sharing burdens is actually like we're, we're helping each other in ministry, and so you guys did this really well. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So what is he saying there? He's saying, it's not right now that I'm trying to manipulate you into giving more. I'm trying to encourage you to keep being a giving people because it's good for you. You are seeing the gift of fruitfulness in your own life. God calls us to be fruitful. God calls us to bless others. And as we give, we're getting to express that fruitfulness that he's made us for. So Paul's saying, yeah, I want you to give, but please don't hear me saying, if you give, God's going to make you rich and give you a Cadillac, right? (laughs) Please don't hear me saying that kind of prosperity gospel stuff. Hear that giving is good for your soul. So he says, uh, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He says, your giving is a form of worship. You're giving to God. Paul's like, you're not giving to me. You're giving to God. When you give to the church, you're not buying a friend. You're not doing it to impress an elder or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. You're giving to God. It's an act of worship. Financial gifts are something we do because we believe that God has given to us. He goes on in verse 19 and says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, God's going to take care of us. God's going to supply all our needs. We're giving to worship him. We're giving to be fruitful, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who gave everything for us. That's what giving is about. It's not this mechanical trick by which we force God to bless us or we put other people in our debt. It's a way of expressing, we believe that God has been gracious to us. Um, Here's a paraphrase of of what he's saying here to kind of make it make more sense, because I think it is clunky in the English. Here's my paraphrase. You guys have been so good to me over the years, and it was great to see your goodness blossoming again in this most recent gift. Some of the language in the Greek there is, it's like, it's blossoming. It's like, I'm seeing things spring up again. Your generosity is is blessing me and blessing others. It was great to see your goodness blossoming again in this most recent gift. I heard that you had tried to get in contact with me earlier and couldn't, but now I see it blossoming again. This is part of the back and forth that Paul is trying to express there. Uh, We tend to think of contentment as a Stoic or Buddhist kind of independence, right? No attachments, completely separated. Christianity takes it way further. Christianity says, yeah, there's this kind of I'm okay independence in Christ that then leads to attachment. It leads to us sacrificing for others. It leads to us crying and loving and serving and being connected with other people. And that's what we see here in the text. That's why it can be confusing. He's saying, man, this this gift is, is so good, but ultimately this is about you and Jesus more than it's about you and I. But it really makes a difference in our lives. I want you to see the same blessings 
of this. I grabbed a picture of some fruit in a vineyard uh, just to give you kind of an image of the language that he's using. This is, this is about your fruitfulness. This is about you being a blessing. Again, 2 Corinthians 9 echoes all the same language. This like God's been gracious to you, so you're going to be a fruitful and gracious and generous person, and you're going to help others, right? And so here's some concepts that I think he's teaching us here. Number one, God can get things done without you, right? Did you know that? Uh, those of you that never practice a weekly Sabbath don't know that, but God can get things done without you. You can take a nap. He can achieve things without your effort. He tells you to rest in him. God can get things done without you. Number two, as you give, though, it helps you to grow in fruitfulness. It teaches you things about the character of God. As you biblically give cheerfully and you trust that God has been gracious to you and you're really content in him and then you share what you have with others, it's about you growing in fruitfulness. And then as you give, it shows God that you love him. It's a sacrifice of praise is the language he uses, kind of Old Testament sacrifice language. It's this great incense, this praise rising up to God. So here's how we apply this. Um, Give, right? Uh, We don't talk about it a lot at our church because we're in such an environment where there's so much health and wealth, prosperity gospel being taught where people are going to manipulate you to give. We would say, yeah, it's good for you to give. Here's the thing. You might have come from a church where they were just manipulating the junk out of you to give. And so I'd say this. You might be here and you're not sure about us yet. You're still getting to know us. I would say it is so important for your own character as a follower of Jesus that you give. I would say then don't give to us. If you don't know who we are and you don't trust us, don't give to us, but give somewhere. Give to the poor. Give to ministries like Hope Pregnancy Center that have proven themselves over the years. Give to Foster Love Bell County. Give to the food pantry. Give to other missionaries. We have some visiting today. Give to other ministries that are tried and true. Give for the glory of God. Because again, it's, it's not about you giving here so that you can earn something with us or with God or with anybody else. It's about the fruitfulness that God wants to live out in your life. Give. It's important to give. Do we want you to give here? Of course we do, right? <laughs> of course we do. We, we have an agenda. We set plans and say we, we want to impact the community for Christ. We're about 20% behind in our giving right now. Not that I say that for the gift, <laughs> But you need to know, that's where we are, about 20% behind right now in our giving. We, we print all that stuff online on the website. You can see it. We'd love for you to partner with us in ministry here. But if you're still not sure, just make sure you're giving somewhere. Give. It's really good for you. Now, there's another thing that I want to address. Uh, a lot of churches teach the 10% tithe, right? Have you ever heard that before? Tithe is just another word for 10%. Um, I would say it's really clearly never taught in the New Testament right? It's a general principle. When you actually go back and look at the old covenant giving, uh, depending on the Old Testament scholar, it was either 23% or 33%, right? Now, there were some pre-old covenant examples of like Abraham giving a tithe to Melchizedek. And so a lot of preachers are like, see, this is this kind of uh, biblical principle that goes throughout the whole Bible. I would say it is a really good number to shoot for. It is a kind of universal number, but I would see it more like as a dashboard indicator, like a warning light. So I would say it this way, if you're not giving 10%, just ask yourself why. Like, like, what's that about? Ancient peoples who are much more poor than us modern people were able to give 10%. Why, why can't we? So I would just ask yourself that question. We want to be a generous person, but there's no, there's no New Testament command that says you have to give this amount. I just say that's a good kind of like dipstick, right? Measuring tape to say, am I a giving person? Am I not? 
Um, but you're not automatically going to hell if you don't give 10%. It's just a good warning light to shoot for. Uh, I would say, if you're not giving, start giving. Build from there. Uh, start with maybe 2%, maybe move to 3%, maybe move, move to 4%. But you want to be a giving, generous person. Again, not to win my affection, but to emulate, to follow Jesus, to show his willingness to give to others in the gospel. Philippians chapter 2 is, is the model for us. Paul keeps going back to Philippians chapter 2 and saying, look at Jesus. Jesus gave up everything for us, so we should give to others. Another thing I want you to understand is some of you don't give because your finances are out of control. I understand that. We've been on and off that horse and struggled with finances and had a lot of other people help us get on budget. And so I've learned a few things, not being naturally good at that. I've learned, number one, the best way to get on a budget is to admit you're not on a budget, okay? It's a good place to start. Step two is to actually audit what you're spending. That is always really helpful. We end up going through that every year or two, just being like, okay, what, what did we actually spend on our utilities? A few years back, our finances seemed to be really out of whack, and I realized our utility costs had doubled in one year. And so you got to look at that, right? You gotta, that's how you build a budget is actually figuring out what you're spending. And then you begin planning, and then you can get better at giving. But again, remember, what's the New Testament command of giving? It's give cheerfully because Jesus has given to you. So those are some helpful steps to, to move forward. Um, I would also say one of the best ways to give is giving your time. We talk about it all the time. Serving on a team, serving others, serving your neighbors, serving here at the church. That's a really helpful way to give. Um, if you struggle with giving, if you struggle with seeing uh, Jesus as someone who's given to you, a, a kind of scary but helpful parable is the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. In the parable of the talents, here's the overall picture of the parable of the talents. Those that believe that God is generous to them are generous people that spend what God has given them for his glory. Those that believe that God is harsh and unfair and does not take care of them they're going to guard their stuff and they're going to doubt God's goodness. So that's just a, a good default question to come back to. Are you content in Jesus? Do you see him as generous? Or do you think God is unfair and he's, he's coming after you and he wants to steal your stuff? What, what's your view of God? Okay, the last secret is the secret of unity. All these build on each other. The secret of contentment leads to the secret of giving. And the secret of giving leads to the secret of unity. I want to go back and reread verse 10. Verse 10 says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So again, my, my paraphrase was, was, man, you've been a blessing to me in the past. I know you haven't been able to lately, but now you have again. And I'm so thankful for that. I appreciate it. Um, but here he's talking about how we're on the same team together. And then we're going to read some of these final verses that are like, hey, say hello to so-and-so and bless so-and-so and greet so-and-so. This happens in all of Paul's letters. And so there's this kind of meta lesson we see in all of Paul's letters where we realize Paul is not the Lone Ranger. Paul to us is like super Christian. He's this incredible apostle. He's writing the Bible. His faith is so incredible for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. We just see him as like way out there but we see he needs people, right? He's saying, hey, send so-and-so to me. I, I need so-and-so. I need this person. Greet this person. This person, I love you so much. I'm so thankful for what you've done. So we see this ministry of, of unity where they work together. They're a family. And we can live that out ourselves as we are content in Christ. And we begin giving and serving with one another. We can actually begin to live out this kind of practical unity. Verse 20 
That was from our last section. It says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. We're reminded of God getting the glory. He gets all the praise. He's the one that empowers us to do all these things. And then Paul goes into his greetings. Verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So again, Paul is greeting. He's connected to a team. He needs other people. And he's saying, God gets all the glory. And God's grace is what enables us to do this. We can't live together in unity without the grace of Jesus. We live in a very divided time. We live in a time where we are more clear about our differences than anything else. And I said this last week, social media is designed to divide us. So if you engage in social media at all, you need to be aware of that. You need to see social media like gasoline. It's dangerous. It's combustible. And you need to use it with care if you use it at all. But we live in a very divided time. Here's the thing. If I think my secret to contentment and my secret to success is what I've done, what's that going to do? That's going to make me way more judgy of you, right? Because I'm going to be like, hey, I'm in the church because I'm so smart and I've got it all figured out. You must be a jerk because you haven't figured it out, right? Or you disagree with my politics, so you're a jerk and you don't have it figured out. I've got it all figured out, right? Or you don't agree with my lifestyle, or you don't like the same music I like, or you don't like this or that, and we... We divide because we see ourselves as the smart ones that have it all figured out. Now, just to be clear, there are absolute standards that we should divide over. Scripture is clear about that, but it's pretty much limited to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the moral law that he demands that we obey. Even with those things, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, we don't really hate on unbelievers when they don't obey God's moral law. We don't judge them. Let God judge them. They're, they're going to do their own thing. But we do want to hold each other accountable to God's ultimate standards of his moral purity. And so are there some things we should divide over? Yes. But what's going on in today's day and age? A lot of things we're dividing over are preferences and tactics, secondary issues. So the secret of unity is remembering that we're all placed in the family of God through Jesus Christ, what he's accomplished for us, he, that makes us members of the same family. That's the starting point. And then we serve together, we give together, we're moving in the same direction, this unified direction of making Jesus known to other people, obeying him, doing what he says. As we do that, then we're living out real unity. Um, I have a picture here of a double kayak. Any of you ever gone canoeing with a spouse or a friend or kayaking with a spouse or friend? Did you find it hard to be unified when you were doing that? It's a pretty good exercise in practical unity, right? Like actually trying to be on the same page, taking it from just this kind of abstract ideal to reality of trying to row in the same direction. It can be really difficult, right? Um, my wife and I, when we were first newly married, we hung wallpaper together. Do you remember that in that first apartment? She doesn't even remember. I remember all these little weird things. She's like, what? I don't know. Uh, we hung wallpaper. Not only did we hang wallpaper together, we hung striped wallpaper, okay? Um, uh, and if, probably some of you don't even know what wallpaper is, right? Do people still use wallpaper? Is that a thing? Does wallpaper exist still in our world? Okay. Some people are like, yes, no, I don't know. Sorry, we shouldn't do question and answer. There's too many of you. Um, <laughs> 
We hung wallpaper. And then I read later in an article that that is one of the most difficult things for a couple to do together, right? <laughs> Kayaking, canoeing, hanging wallpaper, uh, raising children, living a life together. There's all kinds of difficult things that can make it hard for us to be unified. I want to use those illustrations because I want to point out a temptation that you're going you're gonna to have. A temptation towards unity is to stand on the sidelines, right? Because you see so much conflict. You're like, oh, I know. If I never get in the kayak, then we won't have conflict. If we never join together and try stuff, if I just never become a member of a church again, I won't see played out that conflict I say at the last church. If I never teach Sunday school again, I won't have that difficulty I had at the last church. If I just stop trying, then I can live in peace. I can have a detached contentment. The contentment and the ministry that we see exemplified in Jesus is one where he was willing to get his hands dirty. He lived with us, right? He left the perfections of heaven, Paul says in Philippians 2. He came into our world. He suffered for us. He got entangled in our mess. God calls us to keep trying. As I said, some of you are, are burnt out. And maybe you, maybe you need a little rest. You need a little encouragement. I just want to challenge you. Don't give up. Keep trying. Keep fighting for real unity. Keep partnering with other people in ministry. Keep walking side by side with other Christians. Yeah, it's way easier to just live our isolated digital lives and never rub shoulders and never see the sparks fly of trying to do life with other people. But God calls us to do life with other people. Know that we live in a strange time when people can live independent of each other more than ever before. One of the great lessons we learned from the pandemic is that's kind of a terrible thing. (laughs) Even the most introverted digital people recognized, oh, wow, I feel isolated, right? Like even the people that love that the most were like, this is too much. I can't do this anymore. God's made us to need other people. God's made us to walk together. Um, Serve on a team. We keep hammering that. I want to say thank you for those of you that are volunteering. Many of you are serving. I see new volunteers stepping up all the time. This is an exciting time as a church, even as we grieve and cry, as we send people out to new places. Uh, we celebrate as new people come in. We're glad you're here. We want to get to know you. We want to walk beside you as we share Jesus with the city. Um, join a group. Get involved with other Christians where you look at the scripture to, together and you say, man, your struggle is different than my struggle, right? You might be tempted to this sin, and I think that's silly. That, that sin doesn't bother me, but I'm tempted to this other sin, right? You might be tempted to addiction. I'm tempted to pride, but we can walk together and pray for each other that we would obey Jesus and trust that he's enough, right? And so join a group. As we said, there are, there are public groups we have. There are you know, groups that meet at the church, groups that meet in homes. You can, you can form your own group by just grabbing a friend and saying, let's Let's just read a verse of scripture and pray for each other, right? Let's join in united walking with Jesus together. We're united and Jesus is the answer and we both want to obey him. Even though we might have a very diverse background of what that looks like. We might disagree about politics. We might disagree about musical styles. We might disagree about favorite food. But we can come together and say, but we agree about Jesus and we want to obey him. And that's how we can practically be United. Focus more on common ground than on differences. Differences are easy. We're going to have plenty of differences. Focus on common ground and walk together with other saints. All right, we'll wrap up here. Um, the big idea is that 
It's an open secret. Every other religion, every other ism, atheism, secularism, other religions say, if you're smart enough, you can join our secret club. Christianity says, you're not smart enough. But Jesus came after you. We love because he first loved us. God saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. One of the beautiful inner circle passages of the Old Testament is in Exodus 33 and 34. During our broadcast service, we had the children's story read out of that story. In Exodus 33 and 34, Moses is just starting to lead the people of God, and he tells God, God, I don't know how I can lead your people. I haven't even seen you. And here's a a paraphrase. God says something along the lines, well, if you see me face to face, it'll melt your face off. So that's not going to work. But what God does do is he says, I'm going to hide you in a rock and I'm going to let my glory pass by. And you'll see the backside of my glory passing by. But here's the thing. Moses sees more of God through what God proclaims about his character. God says, I am the Lord. I'm the Lord. I am merciful and compassionate. I am just and I punish sin to the third and fourth generation. But I am compassionate. My steadfast love goes on to thousands of generations. And the message we get there is that God indeed, unlike any other religion in the world, unlike any other God, is a God both of justice and of grace. That's the message of the cross. God is a God of justice. We owe him our lives, but he's also a God of grace. Jesus took the punishment for our sins. But here's the thing that's amazing about God's revelation to Moses there in Exodus 33 and 34 that seems to match Jesus' revelation to us in the New Testament. God is indeed a God of justice, but the way we really know him is through the doorway of his grace. God is a God of justice. He will not be mocked, but he invites you to come to him. He is gentle and lowly. He is gracious. He is kind. If you ever doubt that, Look again to Jesus, the God who gave himself for you on the cross. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you have come after us. We pray that that would change us, that that would rock our world, that that would make us people that give ourselves to others, that find contentment in you, that are unified supernaturally, no matter what background we come from, because you are our only hope. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.